So why don't you um, pray with me one more time, and then we'll just dive into our study today of Ephesians, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much uh, for your grace and for your mercy. I do want to lift up and pray for the Vollmer family uh, and the terrible uh, uh, providence that has befell them. And, uh, Lord, we just pray that you would lift up um, Scott's heart, the young man, Strengthen him, God, as he's going to need strength as a young 25-year-old man who now has inherited four children, uh, his siblings, to raise. And uh, I pray that you would just be with him, just a tremendous outpouring of your grace into his heart, Lord. And, uh, Father, I just ask that you would bless our church now as we enter into a new year of setting you before us and of pursuing the things of God and, and of seeking to grow in grace and knowledge We just pray that you would bless us as we live life together for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. So Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, you remember kind of where we were and what we were doing. Uh, We've been talking about practical theology, and the practical theology of Ephesians, you remember, is basically based on really two parts of the book, right? Chapters 1 to 3 is really what we talked about the what's called the indicative, and uh, chapters 4 to 6 is what we could call the imperative. In other words, the indicative is what is real, what is, right? What is the reality that we live in? And then the imperative is, well, how, how, how should we live on the basis of what is real or what is, right? So that's a real simple way to remember the book of Ephesians. And then um, we looked at some of the foundational things um, of practical theology. And number one, do you guys remember what number one was? Boy, if you remember, <laughs> kudos to you. Uh, but number one has to do with union with Christ, right? And that this is sort of the foundational teaching of the book of Ephesians uh, that really undergirds everything about the Christian life. So look at, uh, for example, Ephesians chapter one, right? You'd know this verse so well probably. But verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then the all-important union with Christ phrase, in Christ. Uh, Just that little phrase, in Christ, found all over the New Testament, but especially in Paul. Um, And so we have to ask the question, what, what does Paul mean when he says things like in Christ, right? He could say things like in him, with him, uh, those kind of statements. And obviously what he's talking about here is the, is what theologians call the believer's mystical union with Christ. What do they mean by that? Mystical union. Does it mean that we get mystical? <laughs> what is that? What, what do you think the theologians mean by that? Well, it is spiritual and it is a spiritual connection, but but that's that's basically what theologians are talking about is when they say a mystical union with Christ, what they're speaking of is that spiritual aspect, the fact that the believer and Christ have been spiritually united by faith, right? So it's kind of like, um, I think it's uh, Anthony Hokema who says that even in, I mean, just this passage right here, we are already in the eternal counsels of God, right? Because he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And it says, in love he predestined us. So this union with Christ was 
eternally conceived. And so theologians say what happens is, is that God thinks of us in connection with Christ as he chooses and decrees to lavish us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the heavenly places just means in the heavenly realms, in the realm of eternity, right? In the tribunal and in the council of God. God must conceive of us as connected to Jesus Christ in order to lavish us with every spiritual blessing. It's not as if God looks upon us and says, okay, this person is a pretty good person. You know, I think I'm going to bless him today because he's done pretty good. You know, no, right? Uh, right, look at the word, right? He has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing. So the way we can say it is that nothing good comes to us in the Christian life apart from union with Christ, right? And so union with Christ, absolutely foundational. So practically, how does union with Christ affect our daily walk, <laughs> right? I can think of several things uh, that that knowing that you are in union with Christ, um, what are maybe some things that, that some pitfalls that it would help us to avoid? Can you think of anything? Yes, sir. Okay, good. So it has a sanctifying effect, right? So sanctification is directly affected by our union with Christ. Anything else? Yes, sir. I would say not falling into the, um, you gotta get Okay, so, so what would that lead to then? So, okay, so that, that provides for you what? Security, right? Or assurance? You guys can read that. Of course you can. Yes, ma'am. No condemnation. Okay, so again, just going with the concept of assurance. So that's kind of like a subset of that. Having the mind of Christ. Having the mind of Christ, which also has to do with, you know, sanctification in the realm of the mind, right? So it has an epistemological effect, right? Our our identity. That's really good. That's right. uh, Our identity in Christ, boy, how can we say that? I mean, obviously that means union with Christ, but... But uh, how about this, our nature, right? What does our nature consist of now that we're in union with Christ? Well, we have a renewed nature. And certainly, Ephesians is going to talk about that, right? He says it in Ephesians, what is it? I think he already talked about it. It was in chapter 2. Well, chapter 4, I'm sorry. Chapter 4, uh, down in verse 23, for example. 22, 23, laying aside the old self. There's your identity, right? The self. Right, so this is kind of the way that Ephesians talks about this. It uses the word self, old and new self. That's exactly what it's talking about is who you were outside of Christ and who you were and who you are now in union with Christ. Right, and so it has that concept. But here it says that we are being renewed in the spirit of your mind to put on the new self. You see that? Which has in the which has in the likeness of God been created, watch this now, in righteousness, holiness, and truth. And that really has everything to do with union with Christ. If you are in union with Christ, these are the sort of the pivotal virtues of your life, righteousness, holiness, and truth, right? I mean, very important. Being joint heirs. Yeah, so... You know, so, so yeah, I mean, our security in Christ, we're secure in Him, right? We have every spiritual blessing, right? So, being co-heir, so I guess it affects us eschatologically, right? So, eschatology is sort of affected 
by our union with Christ, right? The fact that we will inherit what he inherits. We're co-heirs with Christ. It's the Father's will to give us the kingdom now, you know, all of that. Um, so here's uh, maybe a pitfall. Uh, how about legalism, right? That's supposed to say legalism. This is a really good marker. It almost works too good, like calligraphy up here. Um, what do you think I mean by that? If we are united to Christ, how does being in union with Christ help us to avoid legalism? Yes, sir. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it has massive implications for our position, right? And our positional righteousness in Christ. If we are, in fact, in union with Christ, guess what? Then we are righteous in Him. We have His infinite merit imputed to our account. I mean, think about that, you guys. I mean, you can try your hardest every day until the day you die, right? To be a good Christian man or woman. But realize this. That the infinite merit of Christ has already been given to your account. I mean, that's almost mind-boggling, right? Um, it's, I remember hearing John Piper say one time, he was teaching through Romans, he says, now I'm going to say something that's going to sound like heresy, <laughs> right? But you can sin and you don't lose your righteousness, right? And, and, and that's true. Uh, uh, that's what union with Christ provides us. It provides us uh, an assurance that even if we fail, we fall, we fall into sin, um, we miss the mark. Our positional righteousness is not affected by that. I mean, I think we all have felt the weight of legalism, right? I would say almost probably particularly when you sin. When you sin, it's almost like you're like, okay, I've sinned. I'm going to get back on the treadmill of righteousness, right? And I'm going to work really hard this time. I'm going to double down. I'm going to pray harder, go to church more faithfully, tithe more faithfully, right? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to read the scriptures more than ever. And you think about what you're doing there, right? In the sense, it's like, well, that's good. It should produce a zeal, your repentance, right? But in the sense, it's like by doing those things, you do not become any more righteous in the sight of God than you were prior to when you sin because you have been united to Christ. Your righteousness doesn't keep you righteous. That's right. Your righteousness doesn't keep you righteous. Christ keeps you righteous. Right? That's right. So there's all these different aspects of how union with Christ affects um, everything in the Christian life, right? And we talked about that. Um, there's another thing that we talked about, uh, another practical foundational thing, and that's what I called covenant uh, participation. All right, covenant participation. Turn to chapter two of Ephesians. Right, you remember that uh, we talked a little bit about that. But remember, verse eleven, uh, there, kind of the author introduces sort of a covenantal train of thought. Right, he says, therefore, remember that you, formerly Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, now that we have been, as he goes on to say, you know, you were 
He says, but now in Christ, you who were formerly afar off, you have been brought near by the blood of the Lamb. Now that, that language there of being brought near, where does that come from? Do you know? I remember visiting Jerusalem many years ago, and uh, there we were on the Temple Mount, and my crazy wife, you know, just crazy Trish, she just thinks she can do anything. She, I mean, Trish just sometimes thinks she can do anything. And Keith, you know what I'm talking about, right? She'll be like under the Temple Mount, you know, just give her a second, you know. So there goes Trish, you know, on the Temple Mount. She's just, oh, this is great, you know. And the Jewish Orthodox rabbis go, whoa, 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 no, 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 back, 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 back. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, what, what did I do? <laughs> she crossed a boundary that was not permissible for women to cross. She was not allowed to draw near to the men's uh, court. She had to stay in the court of the women. And so she could not draw near. There were obstacles in her way. There was a blockade. And what it was is that this is ritually, ceremonially unclean for a woman to enter this past this point and to get this close to the Temple Mount. Incredible, right? So what is this going back to then? The temple. To draw near is a reference that goes back to the tabernacle and to the temple where people were allowed to draw near to the presence of God because they had been covenantally, ceremonially cleansed. You see what I'm saying? And so now, because you are in Christ, you are, you are now a, a participant of the covenant. You're in the covenant community now, you see. Any questions or comments or anything? That, yes, sir. I think that that's um, what verse 14 is alluding to. Um, you probably saw that. But for he, he himself is our peace who made one, who made both groups into one and broke, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was a Gentile court. Only so far the Gentiles could go into the temple. Uh, absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, amen. So, I mean, this is... You know, this is kind of where all of this, you know, goes to. Now, number three, lest I spend all day, you guys know I love to talk about covenantal kind of stuff. So, um, well, this is covenantal too, but just from a different angle, okay? Look at uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 3 to say, what is the third foundational thing, part of the indicative of the letter that sort of undergirds the imperatives of the letter? And I would say this, is this concept right here. Right? Mystery, right? The Greek word is, uh, mysterion. Um, and, uh, uh, this Greek word, just if you want to write it down or just copy it, not because you know it, but just, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, I like Greek, but mysterion is a very crucial theological term in the Bible. Uh, you see it all over, but I want you to see this in chapter three, because chapter three is very big. Let's read uh, beginning in verse 1, okay? It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of the grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Well, now it's called the mystery of Christ. Right. 
Uh, now that's a, that's a big feel, that's a big exegetical decision there. How are we going to interpret that? The mystery of Christ. Well, there's two possibilities grammatically. Is it the mystery that comes from Christ or is it the mystery that pertains to Christ? One's a subjective genitive. What is an objective genitive? Here, I would say it's objective. In other words, it's the mystery that concerns Christ. Okay, that's, that's what I think. Um, and most commentators agree. So or I agree with them, right? Never had an original thought in my life. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, it says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Now think about that. In other generations, this mysterion was not made known to the sons of men. Very interesting, right? He says, <clears throat> see, if you're a Greek-speaking person, up to this point when he said that, it has not been made known to the sons of men. See, a Greek worldview, uh, Platonic, right, Aristotelian type of worldview, you would say, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about, right? Because the Greeks had, especially in the context of Ephesians, read any good commentary on the book of Ephesians, Almost guarantee you in the introduction section they have a um, they have a section on the sociological background of Ephesus, and what is deeply prominent in Ephesus is what's known as mystery cults. These these Greco-Roman cults that was that ultimately flowered into Gnosticism, right? A secret, cryptic, hidden knowledge, right? And so for they, they would say, oh, yes, and this is the objective of life, is the more a person becomes enlightened about the great mystery of the universe, right, then that's where you ascend into true spirituality, right? Now, now that, that, that is a total subjective uh, type of worldview. Absolutely. It's absolutely subjective. Uh, ultimately, uh, it proved to be unknowable um, and all of that. Uh, and Gnosticism was a feudal way of life. It became so futile that the Gnostics became so frustrated with their inability to achieve enlightenment in a sense that they either went to extremes either one way or another. You've heard this, right? They either became extremely ascetic, they they beat their bodies, they starved themselves, all of that. They treated their their bodies harshly or they went into full licentiousness, total immorality, disregard for the human body completely, right? Um all right, maybe I'll get in trouble a little bit here. I had a conversation with a young lady at our church once who said, you know, I want to do acting. But in acting, I'm going to have to kiss other people. Is that okay? Do I have Christian liberty to do that? I'm convinced that I do. So what I would say is, well, actually, if you had to, if you had to pin me down on it, cause I, I hadn't really thought through, you know, the arts and all of that. Um, Christian theology has a, the, a philosophy of aesthetics, art, beauty, okay? And so what I told her was, well, to think that you can use your body in sort of a neutral way, like a pretended neutrality, that it doesn't really matter what I do with my body, I'm just acting. I, th- I said, that's actually a Gnostic worldview. That's not Christian. So I know that might offend you. <laughs> I know you might get mad because I'm saying I don't believe you have the Christian liberty to just go around kissing other people, even if it's just for pretend. Um, you guys agree with me? Don't start fighting about this. <laughs> you say, what's there to fight about? <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. But you see how prevalent these concepts still are? 
I mean, these are thousands of years old, these concepts of the, fl- the flesh is essentially worthless. It's, it's part of the evil material world. It doesn't really matter how you treat it or what you do with it. All that matters is your spirit, your heart, how you feel, what you think inside, your intention. That's what God really cares about. Have you heard that kind of philosophy? Right? It doesn't matter how you dress. God just cares about the secret person of the heart. He doesn't really care how you, what you wear externally. Oh, that is not the Christian worldview, brothers and sisters, right? I mean, Paul tells us very much about modesty, you know? Um, and this is for men and women. Listen, I, I think we get this mi- mixed up because First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse, I think, 9 through 10, it says, you know, women have to adorn themselves modestly, right? And so we think that that's just for women. Now, men have to be modest too. You know, don't come in here with some little muscle shirt, you know. I mean, really? You're at church, you're not at the gym. You know what I mean? <laughs> All right, I'll leave it alone. <laughs> I just want to show you, um, <laughs> I just want to show you what, you know, uh, apologists, you know, talk about in terms of the consequence of ideas. Probably no one better, no one better on this issue than Francis Schaeffer to show you the consequences of worldviews, right? That depending on your foundational worldview commitment, that will radically affect the way that you live. And it's almost always seen in the arts. You know, I mean, look at our, look at our nation, right? Number one exporter of pornography around the world. What do we really believe about anthropology? It's not very good. You see? So, um, but let's go on. I stopped midway. I just talking about <laughs> Jared's like, come on, bro, back to the mystery. I know what you're saying. He says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Wow, that's, wow, that's remarkable there, right? It's almost like we could say it is the spirit's work to bring illumination to the, to the knowledge of the mystery of Christ. Uh, does, is there anywhere where Jesus, can you think of anywhere where Jesus maybe hints to this? Right? Where the Spirit is sort of the revealer of the mystery of Christ. Is it? I think so. I don't know. You know. No, I, I mean, that's a good verse. Never a bad verse, right? But it's somewhere over there, right? It's just... Jesus, uh, I'm asking a question I don't even know the answer to. I was hoping somebody would nail it. But yeah, I, I'm just thinking of like, yeah, the farewell discourses where he talks about that, where he says the spirit of truth, right? He says when he comes, uh, what does he say? I thought it was that right there. Oh, boy. Chapter 16, verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will speak, he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and whatever, and he will, watch this, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things of the Father has our mind. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. 
wow, what a powerful verse, you know what I mean? But there, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, disclosing Jesus Christ to his people. Any questions or comments on that? Yes, sir. Very, very good. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Now let's just keep reading here in Ephesians just to just to get a a, a fuller grasp of this word here, mystery, and how it's functioning here. Because up to this point, wouldn't you agree it's a bit general? It says in verse six. To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So right there, he explains how that the mystery has to do with bringing together the people of God into one Jew and Gentile together in Christ. Um, I have a resource known as the treasury of scripture knowledge. Do you guys have that? If you don't have that, you need to get that. Reason why, treasury of scripture knowledge. And then, Lynn, there's another one, right? Do you remember off the top of your head what it was? It's in E-Sword. It's like, it's, it's like, it's a, basically it's just like an endless cross-referencing tool, which to me is just paradise. Because it's just scripture proving scripture, scripture proving scripture. All is the analogy of faith, of the faith, right? It's just, uh, the, the scriptures interpreting the scriptures. It's, I mean, it's wonderful. And in, in this resource, they list about 16 different ways that the word mystery, uh, in the New Testament is used. That it functions in different, in different ways. This concept here that the mystery has to do with how in Christ Jew and Gentile are coming together is only one way that the word mystery is being used in the New Testament. It's fascinating. So mysterion has many, 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 many different meanings. So I just want to say that so that you're reading your Bible and you're like, huh, this, that, the mystery of the kingdom maybe. You're like, oh, that doesn't, how is that really relating to Jew and Gentile controversy? You see what I'm saying? And just know that in the Bible it accounts for a lot of different Occurrence, even right here in Ephesians, right? Uh, I'm speaking, this is a great mystery, for I am speaking in reference to Christ and the church, right? And that's talking about marriage, right? So it has different, many different applications. Let's, let's keep reading here. He says here, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Now that's a mouthful right there. What is Paul talking about? I mean, I mean, you understand, brothers and sisters, the, just the, just the literary genius of Paul, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's so incredibly elaborate what he's talking about here, but I mean, what he's saying is that he has a ministry. His ministry, his stewardship, as he said in verse 2, is to bring this mystery to light 
and to show what is the administration of the mystery. In other words, how is God administering this? How is he revealing it? How is he dispensing it? How is he bringing it about epic by epic, right? As we have reached the final epic, Christ and the apostles, the final epic and revelatory history. And what he's saying is, this is my job to reveal and to manifest this. And what was hidden in ages past. Now, it was hidden because you know from the ministry of Jesus that the Jews didn't understand this. When Jesus says, I have other sheep and I must call them also. All of those texts on Gentile inclusion were very mysterious to Jews. Now, listen to the words of Hebrews, uh, Romans 11 here. Right. Who the Jews had become so prideful. Right. As the covenant people of God, so arrogant that they didn't want to let the Jews in. And so what's Paul's warning in Romans 11? Beware lest you become conceited that he doesn't cut you off as well. Right. We saw what God did with rebellious Israel. Right. They, 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 they took the key of knowledge away from the people. And what happened? What does Jesus say? The kingdom has been taken away from you and has been given to a people bearing fruit. You see what I'm saying? So, so, um, you know, it, it was hidden. It was mysterious at that time. And the, even in the Old Testament, you have Psalms that talk about this, but I, I think the Jews really misunderstood this. Anybody want to speak to this? Any thoughts or ideas on this? So, are you, so we're saying that it was hidden in, in some degree. In some degree. Not hidden altogether. It was mysterious. Right. You know, um, yeah, because I mean, in the Psalms, you have talk, you know, you have talk about the, co- you know, the farthest coastlands and, yes, right, and yeah, and Isaiah be a light to the nations, you know, all of these things, you know, but Israel didn't fulfill that. Uh, it was fulfilled through Israel, but it was fulfilled through true Israel. I would say reconstituted Israel, the Israel of God, which is those who are, <laughs> in union with Christ, right? Uh, the, the new covenant church, you know. Any questions on that? Uh, okay, so let's keep going. It says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. I would say that's almost like the high point. That the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, what is this referring to? Angels, demons, Every conceivable principality and power, right? Every spiritual force. Um, but it also says rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So, uh, yeah, I would say all, all, you know, every power you can think about, um, the wisdom of God has been known to them. Through the church. Now, look at that, right? So what is the mystery? So here, here we go. Practically speaking, what is the mystery, the imperative? What is it exhorting us to do? What's that? Okay, so evangelism, right? It, it has an, an, evan, an evangelistic thrust, right? That if this is the mystery... That God has accomplished such a deep work that he brings Jew and Gentile together. And Paul says, I proclaim that. These are the unfathomable riches of Christ. I make this known. 
And I would say that's that's our duty to make that known still today. You know, um, what else? What other practical imperative do we have uh, coming to us? What implication do we have coming to us from what God accomplished in the mystery? Anybody think of anything else? I can. <laughs> so what has God done in the mystery? Right? What is it saying? What has he done? You know, what has he accomplished, Lynn? Okay. So then what should that result in? What were you going to say? Yeah, how about this? How about unity? <laughs> right? If God has torn down the things that divide us through the gospel, then we have an imperative, we have an obligation to maintain unity. Turn to chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4. Because remember that in the old covenant, a Gentile was called a dog. The goy, right? You're, it was, you're an unclean, uncircumcised Gentile dog. <laughs> that's, that's what you were looked upon as. In the New Testament, who, who is a dog? Unbelievers. What does Revelation say? Outside are the dogs. Wow. You should do a dog theology. <laughs> Trisha would love that. Oh, Trisha missed a good Sunday school. Well, I'm saying, you know, I mean, does it get any more politically incorrect than that? That what the New Testament is teaching is that now, by virtue of the fact that you are, whether or not you're in union with Christ, that determines whether or not you're a dog. Meaning, which is just code for, you are ceremonially unclean. You have no right to approach the holy city of God. It's really remarkable. Uh, but yeah, but unity, chapter 4, I mean, look at this, we're going to look at this next week, Lord willing. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There we go. Now that peace has been achieved through the outworking of the mystery, the administration of the mystery, it is our job, therefore, to endeavor to keep the unity. Uh, that deepens it a little bit, doesn't it? Because it's not, hey man, keep the unity so that we don't have any issues in the church. How about we keep the unity because of what we are? Because of the mystery. Because this is not just what we ought to do. It is who we are. Right? There's so much, so much here. Anything else? Any, any other questions or comments? Maybe we should finish chapter 3, huh? Look at verse 11. And just, we'll finish right here, right? This is, this is a wonderful note to finish on. Because he says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, oh, there's a therefore. I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Wow, look at that. 
Talk about a verse for missiology. Bringing about the mystery, it is necessary for missionaries to suffer and to be martyred, even as Paul was, so that the mystery would be finished, so the mystery would be fulfilled, right? So that all of God's people will be gathered in, you know? Um, oh yeah, I mean, really weighty. In verse 11, he says, like, this was in accordance with God's eternal purpose. What does that tell us? If this is part of God's eternal purpose, what's the implication of that? Yes, sir. Very good. Couldn't have said it better myself. I perceive that you are a covenantal prophet. (laughs) That's pretty good, Jonathan, because that's exactly right. It shows us even... So what is that, Jonathan, let me... Let me probe a little bit here. What does that what does that say about your view of the Old Testament? That it's all working toward God's purpose. What purpose? The Old Testament's about bringing the redeemed in Christ? Wow. So you're telling me the apostles didn't look at the Old Testament and just try to make their theology fit into it after, after like as, as an afterthought. Like twenty, looking back 2020, they didn't say, hey, you know what? I think we can find places in the Old Testament where what we believe fits. Yeah. Right. Right. And this is, this is so huge for hermeneutics, right? It was for me when I came to the understanding of what now is called the per se reading of scripture, per se, meaning intrinsic, right? Like original. In other words, that Christ and the mystery and the gospel are in the Old Testament scriptures. That's not an afterthought. That's not the apostles sort of playing fast and loose with the Old Testament and trying to make the gospel fit back there sort of applying it in a retroactive way. No, 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 not at all. What they're saying is that this is the unfolding of the Old Testament. And and this is what we're seeing because this is God's eternal purpose from the beginning and prior to time, if that can even be said. Yes, sir. It's God's decree. That's right. Let's end on that. It's God's decree that we end on that note. (laughs) Let's go to worship.